It's a special edition of the AC Pod this week as we wrap the first round of the T20 World Cup. 90 minutes of all the important cricket chat in UAE and Oman. A reminder that the weekly show will return to the normal Friday time next week to talk about World Cup qualifiers for the upcoming tournaments in men's and women's cricket. And of course, join us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash emerging cricket to help us grow the game from as little as two US dollars a month. But for now, enjoy Tim, Nick and myself chat all about the first round of the World Cup. The first round of the T20 World Cup is in the books and gentlemen, there is plenty to discuss uh, winners, losers, storylines are plenty. Thank you to everyone listening around the world, wherever you may be. Uh, make sure to use the hashtag ECPod. Uh, we're a little rusty, given that there wasn't a, a weekly show per se, moving this show a few days back to accommodate the first round. But boys, how are we? I'll start with you, Timothy. How's it all going? Well, um, I've been drinking Benadryl like it's gone out of fashion. Yeah. <laughs> Something started in my chest and has affected my voice. So to most people, that'd be a good thing. But unfortunately, everyone's going to have to listen to me on this podcast. Um, played our last game of the season on Saturday. Failed to defend 83, 84. Oof. Oh, no. Um, it was a grade cricketer type performance. I, I did well, but not well enough. Suffice to say, we managed to lose nine wickets for 16 runs to lose. Um, and I was the first first of those nine wickets to go when I got out. Oh, as the, first domino to fall. Yeah. No, no, well, I was the second wicket to fall. But, you know, we got to one for 52 and I got out. Oh, dear, so, oh, dear. And then we, yeah, 65, 66 all out. So, anyway, took a couple of catches, managed to perhaps break my finger. So, all in all, a good day. <laughs> Are you sure that you haven't lost your voice just because you've been yelling yourself hoarse over the Scottish and Namibian performances by any chance? Oh, look, I wish I could say so. It's a very happy time um, for those two teams. And for us watching, I think uh, even when it got down to Namibia v Ireland, um, I don't think there are any secrets as to, to who we were rooting for, especially considering some of the young stars coming through in that squad. But uh, no, I would love to blame the cricket, but... Um, the hours that it was on here generally meant that there was not too much screaming happening anyway for fear of waking up everyone else in the neighbourhood. <laughs> Look, I was guilty, and Nick was actually with me finally with the lockdown finishing here uh, in Sydney, New South Wales. Nick and I were actually able to catch up. We, we got a bit of a Zoom call happening. Tim, you were on that. A bunch of EC guys jumped on. It was good to catch up with a, a number of the EC contributors helping helping us sort of continue with the platform, but Nick, I was kind of silent in my fist pumping of of Chad Soper wickets for PNG as well. Although I did not, not entirely silent, but uh... yeah, I got pretty am- animated. But free Chaddy, <laughs> free Ch- Chaddy was somewhat freed, not yeah. with the batting. Uh, we'll still, we'll definitely talk about that in due course when we get up to PNG. But Nick, how have you managed to cope with the sleeping patterns and a return to a job with lockdown being over? <laughs> <laughs> with great difficulty. <laughs> I just had a nap this afternoon, which uh, should give you an indication of my sleeping patterns at the moment. But uh, yes, I'm well. Yeah, very exciting times. I'm just yeah so happy for Namibia. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that. But, you know, following them since since EC's first, you know, tournament that we covered uh, in Vintuk, I think Namibia is always going to have a special place in our hearts. Yeah, two successful stories. And, and there, it was always going to be the case that we were going to have 
the teams, you know, likely below, well, for, for Scotland, actually above Bangladesh, but the, the for the two teams in each group to join the Super 12s, we were going to have winners and losers from an emerging standpoint. It just so happened on Group A, it was Namibia over, over Ireland. And we'll talk about that in a moment and all of the successes and all the waves of emotion just watching on some of the stories that have been put out by both Namibia and Scotland, understandably, emotions are at an all-time high, and congratulations to Gerard Erasmus and Carl Kutzer. But we'll start with Group A, uh, actually, to run through both the tables. So Group A, Sri Lanka were top with Namibia in second. Sri Lanka unbeaten three from three. Namibia two from three, losing to Sri Lanka, of course, in their first match. Ireland with one victory over the Netherlands and Netherlands going 0 for 3. And then in Group B, Scotland topping the group undefeated 3 from 3 over Bangladesh, who finished in second, just losing to Scotland, of course. Oman, uh, a little frustrating in terms of their campaign at home, finishing third, and Papua New Guinea being winless. Let's start with Group A. And before we get to the successes of the likes of, of Namibia and even touch on maybe some of the Sri Lankan success, I think one of the big stories to come out so far from the teams who, who missed out, has been the Dutch. I think from a general consensus around the, the three of us and, and among the emerging cricket community, I think there was a lot of disappointment in the way uh, the Netherlands played in this tournament. And, and we know that it's down to a number of reasons, and, and some of them have been quite well put in terms of points around socials and other things. But it was really strange to me. And Tim, I'll start with you. Ryan Campbell, over the last two to three years, had meticulously put that squad together. He tinkered, he toiled with over 20 players looking to find the perfect mix of a playing group. They went to the qualifier, they were excellent, they ended up winning the qualifier. Uh, They weren't the first to qualify, of course, but they ended up winning the qualifier. Only for a couple of pieces of the puzzle not being put together at the very last minute. For some reason, somewhere along the line, matches were not organized properly in the lead-up to the tournament for the Dutch players and coaches to play in. And you could tell that they were severely underdone before well, when the first ball was bowled. And they were put over the top of the coals by Ireland, a team themselves who didn't get through. So starting with the Dutch, and I suppose starting with, with the bad before we get to the good from an emerging standpoint, it was a, a thoroughly disappointing performance. Yep, and I think a lot of people describe that performance against Ireland as what you would like to get out of the way in one of your early warm-up matches when you are acclimatising to to a venue or at least an area um, before a, a huge event like that. Yeah, and to lose four, four wickets and four balls in the middle of that innings, it goes without saying the damage that that would do to the spine of a, of a T20 team and never really recovered at all in the event after that, you know, only, you know, Max O'Dowd, only person to score more than 60 runs, and he was the only person to average more than 20. You know, that's the tale of the tape, really. And when you've got a name as big as Tendiscata not scoring a run and only facing one ball, I think that kind of tells you what happened to them. You know, Max O'Dowd, I think, did everything he could at the top, but a player scoring 123 runs at a strike rate of 116, you know, that's the guy that the team bats around and then is able to be attacking. But the fact that he had the the best strike rate of all the batters just says that, you know, they weren't able to get going. I think uh, the the one that was probably most frustrating watching was the way that Ackerman struggled when he came out to bat in that middle to late section against Namibia when they really needed someone to come in and hit a couple of of sixes, a couple of fours and to, to help 
O'Dowd out, but he struggled at the ball for square and only hit, a, I think it was a six off his second last ball before he got out, which made his score get past a, a strike rate of 100. But um, yeah, and then, you know, with the ball, it was hard for them to, to follow up what had happened with the bat. You know, that you know the Namibia total in the end, what, 164 for four, wasn't it? They got that they weren't able to, to defend. And then also when they came out to bat after that, that first performance against Ireland, you know, it's tough for any bowler, bowling unit. So it's, it's hard to kind of get a gauge on it. Um, and then we're defending, what was the score? 44 in the, in, in, or 45 in the, in the last match. You know, what, what do you do? No matter how good you are and debating whether Van Meekeren should have been in the side more after his CPL form or not, it's a moot point because the bowlers mm. didn't have a chance in any of the, the three games. They batted first in every game and they were sub-pass scores in the end. You could say perhaps 164 against um, Namibia was, was good, but then Namibia did it quite easily in the end which tells you that they they went they, they put those scores up so yeah disappointing and look I don't want to buy too much into the the lack of match practice and everything that that happened well so I wouldn't normally but then to just hear Max O'Dowd sitting up there in a press conference yeah basically call that out that they you know we don't know what happened about that so that means there's obviously chat within the group because they're not normally things that would get outside the the dressing room so I think that that tells us whether the playing group are at you know, or, or at least, you know, some of the players, you know, Max is speaking himself and not necessarily for everyone, but he was using collective nouns when referring to the team. He wasn't saying me, it was it was all, it was us. So, yeah, they've got a lot of cricket coming up. Um, this is very disappointing. Um, I, I just hope there's no sort of knee-jerk reactions um, trying to, to move past this by uh, by the KNCB. Yeah, I think that point about Max O'Dowd is, is probably telling because... Yeah, they just didn't look good as a group, and and the you know if there is disunity in the team group, and you know Adad's coming out and, and complaining about the fact that they didn't get any uh, you know enough preparation, which is you know it's a fair point because as he says in that press conference, you know they they had ten or more prep matches ahead of the T Twenty uh, qualifier, and you know they lost most of them, and then gradually they sort of worked out their combinations and started to click. So yeah, just throwing in the team like this with I mean, they would have only had two warm-up matches yeah. if you know New Zealand hadn't done them a favour, basically, and, and well, sort of yeah. put together a scratch game. Uh, which I mean, that's nice of New Zealand, um, but you know, you, you shouldn't have to be going around to just see who's around and you know, can, can we please have a <laughs> please, sir? Can I have some more? <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, why why were they not part of that summer bash series with the the other associates? You know, Namibia, UAE, Ireland, Scotland, PNG. Um, that they could have easily slotted in and played a couple of games there, or maybe travelled to Oman and, and played against Sri Lanka and Bangladesh like Oman did, or, you know, th- there's a lot they could have done. So it's, it's very strange that they, they just didn't. So, you know, I think there's something to answer there. Uh, Bertus de Jong, friend of the show, has criticised Cambo's approach, and, uh, you know, I think there's something to that. Um, they they did look a bit overly defensive. You talked about Ackerman uh, in, in the middle overs there and only just getting over... Uh, run a ball, which is you know, not what you want in your acceleration time, and um, some some strange decisions like swapping in Bastelada, who's can can get bogged down. Um, I mean, would any of this have made much difference if they'd played the percentages a bit better and and gone a bit harder in the power play or, or all those kinds of things? Maybe, but realistically, I think 
there was too much that was going wrong in the camp that for it to have made a huge difference. Um, and, and you know that kind of stuff is sort of just it look it looks like chasing your tail a bit where you you know something's gone wrong and you, you're sort of tinkering and trying to fix it but you know then you're plugging a different gap and that's creating another problem somewhere else and because everything was was not working as a whole nothing that you know no no change that they could have done really would have made a huge difference there are a, a few things that i, I want to bring up the, the first one was i was a little bit surprised and the the prep and everything that's gone with that and, and all the undertones that go with that i think uh much more important and emphatic points for me that I'll finish up on. But one strategic point that, and obviously not knowing all the ins and outs of the of the Dutch team and, and, and how they wanted to be put together, I did find it odd that Steph Marburg had played so well in the Super League matches had banged the door down to get into the squad, only to be left out for the first game in favour of Baz de Leder. And then in the second game, after Ben Cooper ran himself out, he didn't really give himself an opportunity to show that he was out of form, was then left out of the team for the next game. So, And then by the time he got to the third game, everything was gone, and Tendo actually announced his retirement before the match even started. So that, to me, was, was a little bit odd. I, I think bowling-wise, I think they had the team, no matter who they picked on the bowling side, to do well. If you're good enough without Van Makeren in the in the team, or you feel like you don't need to play Van Makeren, it tells me that you you back your bowlers no matter what the situation is and, and no matter who you've got in the team. But I will go back to the earlier point. I have a feeling that that New Zealand game must have been organised by someone with some sort of connection, either Logan Van Beek or Max O'Dowd, because it was a very hastily put together game, as if to say, "Look, guys, this is the eleventh hour. We're in an emergency here. We haven't had a game lined up for us." This is what we're going to have to do. And to me, it's pretty obvious that there was something wrong from an administration standpoint because it's just not Cambo's MO to just leave the, the calendar blank without a match, without, without any sort of lead-up. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it only proves that there's something wrong at perhaps a, a level above the coaches and players to me. You know, I I won't name names, but, you know, we've scrolled through Instagram and seen family members of <laughs> of KNCB members yeah. living it up in infinity pools and you can go and, and find them. The, the screenshots have been sent around. If anyone wants them, feel free to DM me. But to me, that's kind of the overarching thing because it's just, again, it's just not part of Cambo's MO. And, and I know that we don't want to harp on the negatives too much because we're not really getting anywhere, but... There's just there's just something not right about all of this to me. It just doesn't it doesn't scream a Dutch setup. And and the other thing to to, to also bring up, Peter Saylor was on the back foot with the media for something that wasn't even his fault. He was misquoted oh, yeah. by a very big player in in international cricket media, who we all know. We all saw the graphic again. If if you want the proof, get in touch. But again, he was misquoted. He was forced to kind of defend something he didn't need to defend and I felt for Saylor during the tournament he always seemed when he was dealing with with questions in the media it it often felt like he was being confronted unnecessarily and and he's just not that type of person and and he didn't have he didn't have to confront or he didn't have to defend himself there was nothing that he did that he needed to defend himself for but again it was just another distraction or another factor that that really hindered their entire campaign really yeah and i look at that from an administrator point of view that should have been taken down no it was quick info you know we can say names because it's been it's out there and they never took it down and you know it's been confirmed to us that 
a complaint was made by the Dutch team, and yet it was allowed to, allowed to stay up there, and then it was never clarified. Uh, and I don't want to get all victim mentality about this, but would, would that have happened to a test nation? Would the, would would no. Crick Info have left that up? And it wasn't like people weren't saying about it. Burtis has tagged and, and replied, and as have a couple of us. So that was that was really disappointing, um, and it just sort of showed it the haves and the have-nots. You know, or well, you know, it's only the Netherlands as opposed to to some other country that we might actually you know do the right thing for. So you're right, it was, had it up against him, and that's going to affect you because you're you're, you're trying to focus <laughs> on on the the matter at hand, and you know, three very important games. It was Max, wasn't it? Uh, Max had doubted. That if yeah. he said two or three times in that that interview, here we are preparing for the biggest tournament of our lives. Yeah, no uncertain terms from him as well. And I suppose that the, the saving grace in all of this for the Dutch, for the players and for the coaches is that they haven't got a whole lot of time to mull over this. They've got Super League cricket very soon against Afghanistan and they've got another qualifying campaign for a tournament next year. So yes, while the competition for those last four places at next year's T20 World Cup are fierce because you would think Zimbabwe would make a pretty strong return and Nepal would probably be there, thereabouts, and you'd think that UAE might be a little bit stronger as well. It's going to be a fierce group, and, and Ireland, obviously, as well. So we'll talk about Ireland in a moment, but that's probably the saving grace for, for the Netherlands. And, yeah, just judging by a few of those dismissals, especially in the first game, and we'll talk about it with Ireland at the moment, they made Curtis Camper look like Curtly Ambrose. And we'll talk <laughs> about Ireland's campaign. A double hat-trick, for a lack of a better term here, four wickets in, in four balls, there's been a lot of conjecture if it's a, if it's a double hat trick or not, but it's irrelevant really in in the context of, of Ireland's campaign. They miss out. They were ultimately quite disappointing as well. Outside of that performance against the Netherlands, and and we've probably determined that that was more of an indictment of of the Dutch lead in rather than Ireland's lead in. But the writing could have been on the wall for Ireland as well. You know, they struggled against UAE. The younger players, especially especially on the batting side, didn't really stand up, and, and I found there just wasn't enough variation in the bowling. And in the end. I think they were comfortably beaten by Namibia. Namibia certainly let that chase probably go a little bit longer than they had to. It was well calculated by Erasmus and, and Visa, but I think we can safely say that, that Ireland didn't really show much either. And again, that was more down to perhaps the younger players not quite reaching that, that next level and still being over-reliant on the Sterlings and O'Briens of the team. Yeah, I was looking at the bowling figures for them and I was flabbergasted that only... Only four bowlers took wickets between, you know, Simi Singh, who bowled 11 overs over three matches, went for 96 runs and didn't get a wicket, to Craig Young, to uh, White, who only played the one game, and Kevin O'Brien, who only bowled in the one game. It's just interesting to see there, especially when Simi Singh, I think we named as a, a key player coming in yeah, um, with, with the ball. And I don't know, what do we think's gone on there? Because I think we were talking about how he's... He, being a key bowler for them and in, in how well he had been bowling and his economy rate was up as well he's 8.72 didn't take a wicket you know and and to me you know he was a linchpin of the, the attack for them so really hard for them to try to pivot around and Curtis Camp for taking those four wickets in four balls you know we can debate how good the balls are <laughs> and you know bowling hat trick deliveries at the, at the stumps etc etc but he only took two other wickets across the matches and, I, and I, that's not to take away from a guy who takes four and four balls but yeah so that you know little in a dare five scalps each and, and one to sterling apart from uh, camphor just tells me that they were just uh, ineffectual yeah and then on the the batting side too i think we talked about they were going always a sort of a team of 
you know, a couple of old stars with some young guys coming through that hadn't necessarily shone as brightly as they needed to. And, and I think that's what we saw as well, especially in that Namibia game where we, well, where Ireland and their fans needed needed the likes of Delaney uh, and Tector to really come through. And, and we didn't see that. You know, again, Sterling at the top of the runs. Balburnie behind him, but Balburnie striking it under, under a runner ball. Again, you know, you've got to have bats at the other end who are scoring 120s, 130s, and they didn't have that. Nobody scored over at 110. You know, Sterling and, and Delaney both at 107s and O'Brien 105. But, you know, you don't win T20 events or T20 matches when, when that happens, or at least you don't you don't win as many as you need to. And I think that was the telling. You know, just looking at the stats alone, I think that they, they tell the story. And I know we're going to get to Namibia after it because I've got a huge I told I told you so t-shirt ready to tell both of you around a certain certain debutant for, for Namibia. <laughs> I'm 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 lining up my bowl of humble pie. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I hate to say it, but I think Ireland had the first round that we actually predicted that they'd have. You know, we none of us picked them to to go through. Oh, Bez Bez back to them. I uh, I did only be I to be fair, I I thought that yeah, the likes of, of Simi Singh and, and Delaney would step up a little bit more than they had. And again, uh, I mean, in hindsight, I really should have gone with just the gut of Namibia. I knew that they were strong. I just felt that the Dutch and the Irish were, would be probably up to the standard just with the experience that they've had at this level. But yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. I, I should have just gone with my gut. I sort of bought in. We've all bought into Namibia over the last two years, three <laughs> years. But I just thought, you know, yeah, full member with the experience of the tournament, that experience will shine through. It, it didn't. And Nick, I'll, I'll bring you into it, but Gareth Delaney, for, for me, he, he had a great series, I remember, against the West Indies in the limited over stuff a couple of years back. And that was kind of what I was basing my argument on as to him having a good tournament here in, in UAE. And it, it just didn't materialize. And the strike rate's not good enough. As he said, is with Balberni only striking at, at under 100, Sterlow's going to give you what he gives you. The same with, with Kevin O'Brien. But you just can't rely on that opening pair being that strong. I thought the likes, this was certainly the acid test for the likes of Tector and Delaney to, to really show their credentials at this level. And they just... With the bat, especially, they didn't bring it. And with the bowling, we had questions about the fast bowling and the lack of variation that they had. But again, Tim, as you mentioned, Simi made no cut through in any of those lineups. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of variation there. And it wasn't as if he was just negotiated by the other teams. As you said, he went for eight, nine runs and over in a pretty low scoring group. So it shows you that, that everyone else in the group did, did their homework. Yeah, I think, I mean, Singh, he regressed a bit really like because we were talking about it in our previews he in in the past I've criticized Singh for being a bit one-dimensional and, and sort of just trundling in and, and bowling the same delivery again and again and, and that's very easy to hit you know you've got to have variations at this level because otherwise it's just so easy to milk runs and he he just didn't and and in the last little you know sort of year or so he's been you know just varying his flight and speed a little bit more effectively and and he just he wasn't really doing that and I don't know what what happened it was just Yes, he's had. I mean, you know, having it's just three matches. He's had a bad series. That happens, but yeah, it was it was disappointing. But uh, yeah, so frustrating. You're seeing these guys like Delaney, who against the Netherlands he looked good, and and you know you you thought, well, if if he keeps doing that over the next two games, they'll they're in with a real shot. But then he just sort of got bogged down again, and they just they keep this keeps happening to Ireland. You know, they have 
guys who who sort of show a flash and and you think wow you know if if they keep doing that they they're in with a real chance of of competing at, at higher levels and then and then it gets to just go back to the Sterling show and and then you know another little flash pops up and and it's just I don't know what's missing if it's some level of discipline or or self belief maybe or I, I don't know but yeah we, we, there's just something not quite right there and I think yeah as you said Balburnie. He was pretty anonymous with the bat, but his captaincy just showed a little conservatism. And, you know, the, the talking point, of course, was the decision to, to yank Josh Little when he, he'd taken a, a few early wickets against Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka looked, you know, they were three for eight or something, you know, looking really, you know, <laughs> they were really on the back foot. And, you know, you would think at that point you'd, you'd keep Little on, you know, try and just break that Sri Lankan sort of middle order, which has looked very wobbly in the past. Um, and, you know, if you can punch through another, you know, one, two, three wickets, then then you're in with a real chance of, of getting a very um, a very easy total to chase. Whereas he pulled Little off because clearly the, the plan is, well, Little bowls at the death and, and we've got to save him. And then, yeah, Sri Lanka just got away. Uh, Hasaranga played really well. Um, and, and, you know, that was that. So, you know, at this level, that's kind of what you need to do is if, if someone is having a, a good day, you've got to stick with them because you've, you've got to play more aggressively to beat a higher ranked team. And, and yeah, that was disappointing. And, and Balburnie just, I, I really like him as a player, but I don't think, you know, in a stronger T20 setup, he would not be playing 2020 cricket because his, his batting just isn't really suited. And they have a few guys like that who I think... It's just a, an example of a, sort of a, a relatively shallow uh, a pool of players to choose from, which, again, you know, that's something that they've got to work on administratively and they've done a lot of good work with their domestic setup. So hopefully down the road, you can start finding more sort of T20 specialists. But, you know, at the moment, still Ireland are, are a bit weak in T20s, although <laughs> they're a lot better than they were over the last um, sort of five years or so. I'm very intrigued to see how things go in the next say two years even in this next cycle immediately for the t20 world cup for ireland i think as you mentioned especially with balburnie they've got the the bones of a, of a decent one day international side they played well against south africa in super league action and they beat england in super league action whether or not i factored that in into me thinking they were any good at, at t20 cricket I, I couldn't really tell you but you know with with o'brien departing t20 cricket you would think very soon uh, and Sterling only really being the, the the key player who's aggressive from a T20 standpoint, this generation definitely needs to, to find their feet and find their feet quickly. Yeah, just again, and looking at, at the cutthroat nature of, of the next two eight-team global qualifier A and, and B competitions, again, you would think that they, they're going to have their work cut out for them. And, and as a full member of, of the ICC, and we know that they've been fighting their fronts and they've had their own logistical issues over the last 12 to 24 months, it's certainly going to be a very challenging time for Ireland. Let's get to some of the good news and Namibia. Mm. And I don't know if it was me emotionally hedging and just believing in the team, but thinking they might just win one game and, and the Dutch and Irish might you know, potentially be a little bit stronger, especially the Netherlands. I think this is... There's no such thing as kind of poetic justice, I think, in sport. You know, life and sport aren't necessarily fair. But I think this result is pretty much close to irrefutable proof that everything that Namibia have done over the last two to three years to get to this moment has been almightily effective, Tim. 
we've talked about it. But we've shouted Namibia's name from the rooftops, podcast after podcast. They've passed every single test that they've found themselves entrenched in, whether it be World Cricket League 2 in 2019 when we were there, whether it be when they tested themselves at home against South African domestic sides, uh, the Zimbabwe emerging sides, everywhere and everyone who have come to play against Namibia, whether it be one day international cricket now with the Cricket World Cup League 2 and at the qualifier, momentum's been a big thing. They've carried that momentum just about the whole way through. And look, the way that they play, and I'll probably bring it up again when, when it comes back to me, that they play a way... Of, they play a form of cricket where they don't really care what you try to do to them, especially from a batting point of view. They will go with what they've got. They've got a very clear plan. You can see the plan into action that Pierre de Brain and Albie Morkel have put in place. And on the whole, it, it works to a T. And it might have been good for them to get that Sri Lanka game out of the way, just to give them that experience, just to give them the chance to, to blood themselves into the tournament. And after that, they were pretty emphatic, really. Yeah, I, I was thinking exactly the same thing as you were to bring it to me that in the end they got that that game out of the way then it wasn't a shocker by any means but this on the same vein of thinking about that Netherlands Ireland game and how critical it was for them to beat Ireland for you know their future in the event anyway and it happened to be a match they needed to win whereas Namibia you could say that this was a game that they could theoretically drop and still win the other two games to make sure that they they went through so completely agree there and everything you said about what they've been building towards uh, and if we want to talk about treetops you know the way that we have spoken about we you know what we've been saying uh, about Erasmus being a class above associate cricket and look I don't want to put put lines there about you know associate to, to full member but he just needs a platform like this for the world to see just how good he is and I, I'd, I'd yeah. say he's probably to me better suited to to a longer form to 50 overs where he can really um, warm up and warm into an, an innings but he's, he's just shown his class and his temperament I think is what I was most pleased for Yeah, to see the way that he closed out that, that game when you know all the, the Twitterati was saying oh no Zane Green's lost in this match Erasmus never panicked he, ne- the, no, you know, never. he was focused never panicked never played a full shot and then Vise coming in to finish the game like he did he played the perfect role uh he came in he chanced his arm a little bit but he, he went straight yeah you know, he cleaned sixes and in the end they they speaking of cakewalks you know they did it really easily and i i saw i saw the back end of that innings and when i turned on it was at that stage when they needed what was it 90 off 60 or 70 high after having a really yeah, slow it was start eight and a half yeah, yeah it was eight and a half and, and zane was still in and then and then he got out not long after but you for all the panicking on Twitter, I'm watching this going. No, they they got this, got this, and then but and then next in we've got JJ Smith who only batted twice for 26 runs, uh, averaging 113. When you've got a guy like that still in the hutch, let alone everyone that comes behind him, it's like no, this is this is all over, and I have to take off my Hong Kong hat of thinking it's never over, no matter what stage <laughs> it's in or here north of Fate, but. Um, yeah, and again, the bowlers that we, we knew could do the job for them did. You know, Schultz went just over sevens, uh, only took two wickets, but, you know, he really held the end up. You know, Trumpleman, Freilink, you know, again, going under under eights, Freilink, t- tanking five. Um, look, we, we'll take a few marks away for that haircut. He's just got to shave it off. <laughs> but Vise again, he went for six and a half, three wickets, 
you know, here comes the I told you so. <laughs> there, there were two other people on this call that you know, didn't think he'd, he'd make a big impact and it was just another FM coming in. But in the end, he's played how, how big a role has he played in, in being that gaps man, you know, where there were great big rocks around the, the JJ Smiths, the Erasmus, etc. He's just he's just come in and slid in and completed the picture for me. And I don't know if that analogy works, but and you could see he was calm. He never, he, the only time you saw him lose it was emotionally in uh, celebration sense you just see just came in consummate pro and just completed this this team and yet they might not have the complete skill level across the side to match up player for player against the Indians and Pakistans and I know that's not what we're here to do but you know right now if I'm playing against this side and I'm a full member coach I'm like, oh crap I've got to really go and watch these videos because you know we haven't done any work on these on these guys from Namibia and, and likewise with Scotland you know we'll get to Scotland's performance which was clinical but Namibia showed everything that we've been talking about which was was really pleasing and I'm how good that we, there's another five matches for the world to see JJ Smith who has not really done much especially with the bat as explosive as we know he can be yeah I mean Smith's he's bowled pretty well and and that I mean until relatively recently was his sort of primary skill set um and and those you know that fleet of left armors that they have uh, has, has been quite effective i, I mean yeah I'm, I'm gonna chow down on my humble pie now i, I thought how big would spoon would you be yep <laughs> do, you, do you want some uh, cream on that <laughs> um but yes no yeah, yeah visa added quite a lot I, I thought he was sort of you know just looking at his um numbers in domestic t20 comps sort of seemed like a kind of bat eight bowl a couple of overs here and there guy whereas he's been he's been key for yeah. both you know in both disciplines and um i think it's interesting that he as you mentioned him being a consummate pro and, and the fact that he has just so much experience i think is is really the value there and he you know knows where to bowl and when to bowl and you know where what areas you know he knows his game inside out which areas he's going to hit to um even on you know it, it, you know in Sharjah where the pitch was a bit dodgy he said after the game that you know he's he's played there a fair bit in, in various franchise tournaments. So he knew what to expect and he was able to hit early, uh, whereas, you know, the other guys sort of had to, to get used to the tracks. Um, yeah, I think one interesting point about um, the Namibians this time compared to 2003, and uh, I'll just drop a plug in for our, um, our, our Rewind podcast. Uh, it's a good series. Where we, we talked to a bunch of guys from the 2003 team about their experiences and, and um, some other pl- people like uh, Erasmus and, and Bard who were inspired by them uh, back in, in the, the World Cup in, uh, in, in South Africa uh, 18 years ago. But um, yeah, so uh, the difference, you know, looking at the footage, and I, I watched the footage um, from the 2003 World Cup to, to make the series, they, they looked genuine, you know, I, I don't know if hopeless is too strong a word, but they really struggled against quality bowling um, and, and they just couldn't handle it. And whereas, you know, this time, we all know Erasmus's class, but Williams was adapting, you know, Green, I think, had a poor game. That's a fair criticism. He had a pretty bad game against Ireland and uh, it was just one of those innings where you, you think you know, you're better off just you know, <laughs> chopping it into your own stumps. But the fact that the associates in general are playing at this level, it, it's sort of it shows how far cricket has come, really. Because instead of being just completely inept, they they can match the skills. They just pull it off, you know, sort of ten fifteen percent less of the time, and that makes a difference, especially at the lower end of full member overlapping with associate cricket, where you know they're able to play the shots, they're able to pull off all the skills but they, they just do it slightly less consistently and that, that makes all the difference. And um, just looking at that Sri Lanka game, they were 
really, you could tell they were amped up and they just sort of needed to, they had a lot of nerves, I think. And it showed character that they came back after losing quite badly. But, you know, even even in that Sri Lanka game, if, if Schultz had taken that catch at um, deep square leg off Rajapaksa, you know, Sri Lanka would have been four for 60 and their middle order is pretty suspect. So, you know, if they had sort of 30 more runs on the board and, and they took that catch, things might have gone very differently. So it wasn't necessarily a, a complete trouncing. Certainly not Netherlands level, but yeah, I don't know. Looking at that Sri Lanka game especially, you just see they're adapting in real time. You know, they they were getting used to the pitch and, and they were you know, becoming more comfortable against it. Even against the you know, mystery spin of Tikshana, they, they just got used to it. Williams and Erasmus, I think if that had been a 50-over game with a bit more time, they would have put up a decent total. And yeah, I think this is you know a bit of a sort of tangent, but I think this is partly why T20 cricket being known for creating more upsets is a bit of a myth because there's no time yeah. to adapt whereas in 50 over cricket they could have built a partnership and then launched and again it just goes to show why they need more exposure at this level you know i think namibia would win at least once in a five match series against sri lanka they have the skills they just need to get used to the you know the, the quality bowling I, I thought the and without trying to sound too much of an apologist i, I thought the scorecard actually probably did them a disservice in Namibia. I thought they were a bit better than the 96 all-out suggested because, as you said, they were adapting on the fly there. When you're thrown into that situation, there really isn't any comparison or anything that Namibia can really draw on when playing teams of, of mystery spin like Tixana and the, the quick bowling that actually looked quite sharp. And you could tell that that Bard and Green were just adjusting to that extra 5Ks an hour pace, which is a big difference. You know, we, we need to acknowledge that and when it comes to the Super 12s that'll be one of the big challenges for Namibia I actually think that Stephen Bard will probably come back into the team just to give them a little bit more batting insurance but I look at the way that Gerard played that first innings and he mugged off Hasaranga let's be honest he hit two consecutive boundaries off Hasaranga he made him look like any other bowler in world cricket and this is a guy who's you know, pushing the rankings of both the, the T20 international bowling rankings and the T20 international all-rounder rankings he hit a backward cut sort of behind or actually might have been just to the right of the the third man fielder class shot went to the boundary and then next ball he hit an inside out cover drive sort of wide of the cover fielder that went to the boundary the only time he really looked troubled or or sort of fell is when he had to sort of up the ante just a little bit and, and he played that shot which ultimately got himself out but yeah again to look at that irish chase it was look to me it was just comfy and yeah just the the maturity and and the coolness of of him in that situation, knowing that he had Visa with him, knowing that he had JJ Smith still in the bank. JJ Smith hasn't got out yet because he's barely had a chance to bat. So to me, like there, there was just so many overwhelming positives in this campaign. And again, it's a clear indication that everything that they've they've done over the last three years on and off the field has gone directly into this. As Herard says, it's it's a tight ship, but he also had a quote on Instagram, which I found not bad. It was well, if size mattered, then the elephant would be the king of the jungle, and they were they were fantastic with with the tight ship that they did have. And Jan Freiling's a bit of an unsung hero. We've talked about the batting order, and we've talked about their set batting plan, and you can see how they're trying to execute every game. They might jagger win in the Super Twelves. I'm not 100 percent sure, but bowling speed solid too, and and even Skultz could could probably we know he's he's even capable of, of even more. So. Again, I think they might reach another level and, and they might just jag one or two victories in the next stage. Uh, 
Do we do we really have anything to add on, on Sri Lanka? I think one point I would make, sort of, as they go into the Super Twelve and and uh, seeing them play against Bangladesh as well, is that their batting's probably been a little bit stronger, a little bit less frail maybe than we thought it might have been. Their strength's definitely in the bowling, but again, I, I thought they 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 showed something new or, or different than they've than they've had in in the last year because outside of this tournament, they've they've been pretty poor. Yeah, I mean, where did you know, a, a pair of one forty-five kilometer an hour bowlers opening it. You know, where did that come from? Is that? Is that I, I don't know. It's, it seems like everything's just sort of come together at the last minute, and they looked genuinely dangerous with the ball. And but yeah, you know, even in that group stage, the batting looked pretty wobbly uh, against Namibia. You know, as I said, you know that catch from Rajapaksa goes to Scholtz, and who knows what happens? And and they were yeah you know, three for eight against Ireland. So, you know, they're, they're batting. Yeah, there's still signs of that team that lost so many games, but the fact that they pulled together is yeah pretty impressive. Let's move on to Group B and we'll stick to the winners, I think, and a team that we'll see in the Super 12s in Scotland, undefeated, coming back from the dead almost against Bangladesh, 6 for 53, I think they were, when Chris Greaves and Mark Watt combined in a partnership, built a respectable and defendable total, which they ultimately did defend. And, They've carried that momentum and they've been sort of buoyed by that performance. Kyle Kutzer looks like he's running a very well-organized team. Uh, Kyle himself actually got in the runs in the last game, which bodes well for their Super 12 aspirations. But Richie Barrington, in the form of his life, I think it must be said, he just can't put a foot wrong at the moment. And no matter who they throw the ball to, there seems to be results. Mark Watt's been good. Again, Chris Greaves. To start with you, Tim, I I think we we looked at the team and comparing them to the other two associates in the group, PNG and Oman, I think they had the the most depth and they had the most individual match winners in their team but ultimately it's been a pretty strong team performance to to win all three games overcome a, a challenging Oman at home in the final group game as well relatively comfortably and Josh Wavy Davies or Gravy Baby like he's been excellent as well so <laughs> look, there's so many overwhelming positives in this group at the moment I think we talked about Ireland's struggles and, and Netherlands you know the stats tell a completely different story of a team that's absolutely firing. You know, you talked about Barrington, most runs and, average, and, and and striking at 137. And you go down, Greaves, 151, Munsey, 123, Kyle, 114, Watt, 122. The only, the only one under 100 in their top six was, was Matt Cross, and that was at 93. So it just shows you that they really got the pace of the innings correct. And the three from three, it's, it's no no coincidence there. In the end, for the bowling side, you know, you, you finally got to Davey there. Eight wickets from him. Average of, you know, eight. Economy under six. And Waddy as well, he went for under six too. And that's massive in, in a left arm spin. Uh, that wicket in Amman that we thought, you know, was getting a little tired. But we still thought there were going to be some big scores on, on that field. And again, some great contributions from well not not bit part players but people that you want to see stand up and and least for me the way that he's sort of got himself into the team and plays such a critical role down the order with the bat and play and bowls some some important overs um, and then he said yeah we're talking about the, the pace attack and whether they they had it with Ali Evans and, and Safian Sharif but there the injection of of someone that we we knew basically nothing about in in, in Greaves was just massive I mean the performance in that first game must have just lifted everyone to see this this new guy come out wickets runs and everyone else must just look to each other if he can do it we can do it you know if he's leading us and 
you know, if we talked about Namibia showing, uh, well, at least coming true on the promise, I think the, the Scotland was another step forward where a team that has said they want to be a full member came out and put a performance together of a full member um, with huge high-performance programs and first-class comps feeding into this this team. Uh, if you didn't know anything about Scotland before this event, you'd just say that they're, they're, they're one of the big boys and, and yet... Yeah, they won. They look like they should have. They, they just ooze confidence. And you talked about Kotz's batting in that that last match as well. And when he's hitting, you know, length balls for six over over cow corner, oh, uh, it's so good. some of the noises so of those good. ones. And and admittedly, I only watched on the highlights, but you know that's. Um, literal warning shots um, for those uh, who are going to come up against them because again you're saying well he's an older guy and the anchor of the innings is like well no he, he struck at almost 115 was fifth on the, on the, the run scorers list but when you've got team performances like you've had you've talked about teams coming up against Namibia being afraid geez I don't want to play the men in purple they, they are the purple people eaters <laughs> <laughs> they are the one one-eyed wine horde flying purple people eaters and that's not the the things that that eat only purple people and look I, I do love I do love a purple kit how how good are the purple lids how good is the purple kit and and for oh. those not watching us uh, Daniel is putting the brand new Scotland shirt on on his head um, but <laughs> nobody will ever see that but um no really exciting and really happy to see them go through in this style and and you know five more games to see them strut the stuff yeah, Greaves, I think, is obviously the find of the tournament for them. But um, it, it was a really interesting point from Jonathan Liu about the, the democratisation of cricket skills and you know the fact that Greaves, who... I mean, he's played club cricket in Scotland for a little while now, but you know he's... I think he got a game or two in a Scotland A team uh, in 2019, maybe, or you know, he's sort of been on the fringes of the, of the side, sort of there or thereabouts. But he's got a full range of reverse sweeps that he can hit for six, or, or you know, an arsenal of wrongins and just all the variations. And 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 the fact that you know, <laughs> these skills that are sort of forged in T20 leagues are sort of filtering down to every level of cricket is um, really interesting, and and it it shows that I guess as I was saying earlier, you know, the fact that the the teams here have all those skills just indicates how far cricket has come in terms of uh you know the associates being able to compete with teams that have you know much bigger budgets and and uh playing bases and you know you look at bangladesh and how how much uh you know cricket is embedded in the culture there and and you know the the struggles that uh, scotland has with you know trying to attract talent and, and whatnot but yeah looking at that um just early kyle especially looked looked nervous and and that was interesting to me because you know playing against bangladesh a few years ago in, in 2015 in, in the world cup he smashed them to all parts and and here he was he was just going a bit hard and and looked like he had similar nerves to namibia but then as the tournament went on they got into their stride and and um you know, they, they looked very, very good against Oman and just very clinical, which is something that is encouraging because Scotland has in the past at, at ICC events struggled to, to get over the line and they've choked in a few close games. So the fact that they're uh, putting it all together now looks uh, really good. And and you, you talked a bit about, yeah, Josh Davey and uh, Mark Watt. Well, the bowls in general have been, you know, we talk about Scotland as a, sort of a, more of a batting uh, being their strength, but the, the bowls have been the story, really. Greaves, Davey, Watt. Um, you know, I think Sharif. Yeah, Sharif with his Yorkers, they they look pretty good with the ball, which is a, a sort of a new development for Scotland. Given the the change in the playing conditions or the change in the draw, it's meant that both these teams, both Scotland and Namibia, are now playing in the same group. 
um, with, of course, Bangladesh finishing second in Group B of the first round. So looking at their group, they played... Hang on. Before before we get into that, we should really talk about this. Yeah. You know, I think it's I think we're the only podcast or news news servers anywhere in the world that, that picked this up and have, have spoken about it. They're that crazy rule at the start of the tournament, I think I've still got the press release, I think it's the 18th of August. Yeah. Um, it was two lines at the bottom of a press yep, release. Saying that no matter where Bangladesh and Sri Lanka finish in the top two, they'll both be seeded. A1, B1. And then they change it mid-tournament. So we sort of half-jokingly said maybe this is to make sure that, you know, people buying tickets for whom they think there's going to be a lot more of them buying for Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, they know where to buy them for. But to change it mid-tournament, I think uh, Andrew Nixon said, you know, it's it's one thing to have a bad rule there in the first place, but changing it mid-tournament doesn't doesn't make it right. Yeah, exactly. Two wrongs don't make a right, do they? <laughs> yeah, no. So that's just craziness. But I think then someone can said oh, you know, it was discussed, but then decided not to go ahead with it. It's like, no, it wasn't discussed. It was in a press release. Press release that isn't on the website anymore, but was emailed to, to all media. So for that, look, I, I don't want to say the ends justify the means because it's not right. You know, it's one thing having a, a rule, but then changing it mid-tournament without any actual notification to people as well. I think they really thought it had slipped under. But, you know, you said yourself when you were talking with your colleagues about did anyone know the reason behind it? Um, well, in the end, it gets changed. So the, we've got Bangladesh and Sri Lanka in, in one group all together, which in, in one way is... It's good because people are going to be asking questions about how this happened. Jeez, you're in one group with two, two associates, and uh, probably it, it means that the AMs are going to get a, get at least one win between them, no matter how what event they have as we go go forward. But um, I just didn't need it. Like from the start, it was, it was just a silly rule, wasn't it? But uh, yeah, anyway, you can go back to talking about the group now. Uh, but looking at, at Group Two and Pakistan, Afghanistan, New Zealand, and India at that group, with Scotland playing. Afghanistan tonight as we record this up might have already happened you would almost back Scotland to beat Afghanistan given that the shuffles around there but is there anyone else in that group that these teams could potentially target I I look at New Zealand and India and Pakistan as all having some fiery quicks and that might probably be the undoing potentially of of the two associate members but outside of that I don't think there's a whole lot sort of threatening you would think that that both of these teams would put up pretty good fights against both of these oppositions. They've, they've proven it in the first round. They've, they've had three competitive matches uh, under their belt before the group started. Are we looking at any potential matchups here as, as ones that these two teams can exploit? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, those three teams, they all have, you know, a lot of quality about them. And, and you know, so it, it, I'm not, I'm not going to stick my neck out and say they're definitely, yeah. But, yeah, you'd think they would target Afghanistan, who, as you said, have been a bit... I mean, when are they when are they not messy in in uh, you know team selections and whatnot? But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, before the tournament, I might have said Pakistan, but then after the way they beat India, you think, well, you know, how how are you going to get through that? But <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, New Zealand, the Netherlands ran New Zealand close in the warm up games, yeah, which true. you know we don't necessarily take too much out of that. But you know, I I think New Zealand's probably the most winnable because they play a kind of a, a more similar brand of cricket to both Namibia and Scotland, and so they'd potentially be a bit more used to that. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just exciting times coming up. I'm keen to get up at, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning or whatever and uh, watch watch the guys in purple. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. I think, yeah, there's, it's, it's a weird one to say they play similar or, or a softer brand of cricket in New Zealand, but, yeah, you just got to go after mercurial 
Afghanistan, I think, and um, and hope that uh, you can get through the likes of Rashid and Majib, especially. Well, not to discount any of the other tweakers that they have, and hope you can take a few quick wickets and and really get them uh, get them struggling. But you know, it sounds like every game get through the good spinners and take wickets. But <laughs> yeah, look, I'm sure the work will have been done prepping to uh, to get into this, and they'll just take out their their Coley sheets and uh, <laughs> Barbara's arm sheets to uh, see how they're going to bowl to these class players but like yeah like you said Nick it's just uh, just exciting to see them go up against them and, and and again this is just all experience building for me just think of the the way that they what they're going to learn in these five games well let's say four games they're probably not going to learn as much playing against each other but in the, these these four massive matches uh, and how how strong they're going to be out of the back of that especially considering they've got another world cup in a year's time that they're going to be going, going up against some of these teams again so you know just to bounce from that and into the future is just such a great opportunity for both these sides I think and this probably goes without saying I think that the big key for both of the teams is to just negotiate that batting power play or the first sort of four overs I think that's kind of where the matches are going to be lost rather than won I think it's just about negotiating that early spell I mean looking at the way that Shaheen Afridi moved the ball in the air against the likes of K.L. Rahul and Co. last night is, well, it's it's world-class and, and no one in the world can, can really deal with something like that. So, yeah, again, looking to the opening pairs of both sides, if Bard and Green do match up together, which I suspect they might, and then looking at at, at, at Kurtzer and Co. For, for Scotland, I think that that first four-over period, I think, is crucial. And you can always try and back-end, you know, with, with spin... They aren't going to threaten you through sheer pace or through sheer canniness. It's just for Scotland, it's probably going to be a case of sweeping a lot. And then for the likes of Erasmus, Smith and Visa, it's just about getting on the front foot, getting to the pitch of the ball and and attacking that way. So I've got a lot of hope. I think that both teams will definitely mount a challenge against most of those teams, if not all of them. You would suspect, you know, with a with an India side wounded after that performance, they'll try everything they can to sort of hit back and hit back hard to make the final four. But I don't know. It leaves. I think it leaves the group more open than it would have been. I think Pakistan are always capable of of collapsing as much as they are playing really well. So I think it does open it up. And Pakistan are prone to a to an upset or prone to a collapse, as are New Zealand. And we know where Afghanistan are at. So I think both teams. Are, would probably fancy their chances. I actually think it's probably the better of the, the two groups to actually be in because I don't think you want to take on Sri Lanka and Bangladesh again. And you never know what the what West Indies and, and England are going to come out with either. I know the West Indies have been poor, but you know they're defending champions for a reason. So, yeah, I think on the balance, it, it works out pretty well. Um, should we get to the two teams that, that didn't progress in, in Group B now just to end on a on a somber note, unfortunately? Yeah. We'll start with PNG. And whilst I think... We had predicted them missing out and we know that the lead-up has not been ideal and, and none of that was really within their control. They did everything they could in that they got to Oman early, they prepared, they played warm-up matches, they played Cricket World Cup League 2. The results on the field weren't up to scratch. But I think they were solid-ish performances. Yes, they were chased down by Oman, losing by 10 wickets, but there was a great comeback there in that that third wicket partnership between Amini and Valor, I thought those guys standing up really was a good indication of what they are as players. I think Amini was a bit unlucky. He got run out in two innings, uh, one of them being that that knock, and then dismissed by an unbelievable catch in the deep by Mohamed Naim Sheikh. You know, someone get that that man a, a lottery ticket. But 
on the bowling side too, Chatty took three for twenty-four in in the in that game against Scotland and and gave Scotland a run for their money, who went unbeaten. So I certainly don't think PNG were embarrassed on, on the world stage. They they even for the most part were involved against Bangladesh as well. They took an early wicket. They took Mohammed Naim early. They let them probably get away a little bit at the back end of that batting innings for Bangladesh. Uh, again. It's going to be tough in the qualifier. We've already established that with with the teams coming in. But I don't know. I don't think I'm as down on PNG as, as a couple of other people, Nick. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was pretty sad watching them because I mean we we love them. We love them to bits. They're just such a great bunch of guys. And and as a a team on the world stage, I think they just add something really magical. So it was sad to see them doing so badly. I think, yeah, they, they as we've talked about a lot, they play a pretty samey brand of cricket. They've got a lot of seamers who, who don't bowl that quick and try and bowl tight lines and um, who back up as kind of all-rounders. And, and you know, the, the guys from sort of you know, four to nine could all be pretty interchangeable and, and, and that whole thing. I don't know. I think, yeah, as you said, CGA Mini, very impressive with the bat. I don't know, two run outs, that's a bit careless. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a bit early to judge Carl Sandry as coach. But, you know, the fact that PNG, I mean, they're, they're sort of, I don't know, it just seems like they're stuck in a bit of a rut. They're, they're just doing the same thing and they're getting the same results and not a whole lot's changing. So, you know, you'd, you'd think now's the time to have a bit of a, a you know, a reset sort of take stock of what's going on. Where's the new talent coming from? Because as we've said, the, the squad's been very... I mean, stable is one way of putting it and stagnant is kind of the, the other side of that. You know, administratively though, you know, look, Greg Campbell has been there forever. Um, you know, is it time for some new ideas at the top in, in the administration? I don't know. That's that's. I'm just putting that out there because, you know, it just looks like they're, they're getting a bit stale and whereas... You know, with the base that they have domestically in terms of the potential playing pool, I think they should be doing a lot better than they are. Tim, what did you make of it? I know that in terms of tight ships, P&G are probably the tightest. But seeing Greg Campbell kind of next to Sandry in Sandry's ear as a CEO, it just, to me, it, it, it doesn't seem right. I, I don't know. You're from an administrative background, so you probably know more about this. But... I, I found that they've got other coaches helping out and, and a support team of, of analysts, etc. I, I did find it a little bit odd that, that he was there right next to a new Carl Sandry, a very raw Carl Sandry in that job. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because, you know, he's a test cricketer. You know, he was an 89 Ashes fast bowler, young, angry fast bowler with flowing blonde locks uh, way back then. So he's played at the, at the highest level, but um, so it's tough to... Co- compared to sort of my position in that I haven't come from a playing background to work in associate cricket that you know I think it helped my perspective but that's not why I'm there and to me the dressing room and the sanctity of that you know a CEO even when I think back to the story of James Sutherland going into the dressing rooms in was it Hobart to berate the Australian team after after that when they got rolled by South Africa to sort of read them the right act I still question whether that's the CEO's role like if there's an absolute crisis but to have that the sort of sitting there, ultimately these coaches sort of reporting to their, and he's there as manager and he was there in the UAE for the 2019 event and in a similar role there. So I don't think they're saying that this is this is a problem, but it is, a, yeah, I, I find intriguing, especially for a new coach there who's trying to find, find his own way, what, what effect that would have of as any. Um, but how do I reflect on the, on the team? I think we, we pulled out a few names that we, we knew were key, whether the Barramundis were, were going to probably get out of a rut, and one of them was Legacy Acker. 
and unfortunately he didn't bring anything. You know, 14 runs in three innings and only bowled three overs and went for 25 runs. A player that has been there a long time, has batted in the top order, quality leg spinner as well. You, you need more from, from these players and... and we have Atai there, who was a wicketkeeper up until a couple of months ago, ends up being their most economical bowler. You know, yeah, he bowled for five overs, but to go for only 35 and take two wickets says that perhaps they've, they've found someone there. But, you know, does that mean who's going to come into the team if, if Legasiaka is dropped? You know, I think that's the problem as well. If we don't have anyone performing coming through, we all know the story of why their under-19s didn't get to play in a World Cup, but there must be some talent in that group hopefully coming through. But likewise with Amini, I don't want to kind of brush over two runouts at a three innings I just think that's careless that run out in game one when he ran down and passed Vala and well ran ran down towards him and ended up getting run out of the, the bowlers and it just it wasn't necessary you know it was just one of those silly little things getting too overexcited and you know we've got to be doing this got to be it's like no just just calm down and I think you know it's what's it's Cambo saying isn't it the team that panics last generally wins um was it the second run out where he got sent back by his partner though that's the other one I'm, I'm thinking of which makes me think that that one might not have been his doing as careless as it is as a team between the two players running between the wickets yeah but I think that that says a lot about where a player's at you know there's for a pattern to emerge I know it's only in, in three games but you know, um, we look at Vala and know the weight that were on his shoulders. And whilst we saw glimpses, again, you know, he still scored at a, a, a cracking rate for a talisman that he is of that of that team to be striking almost 127, and he got that that half century. Yeah, it just was, I think, the performance that we expected. You know, a team of all rounders without anybody really grabbing the game by the scruff of the neck to say, no, no, I'm going to... Like a, a Greaves did for, for Scotland, we, we didn't see that for, for PNG as much as we, we hoped. And Norman did Norman things in, in one of the games or two of the games, I think, with the, the coming out and almost... Not, not, not almost winning it, but getting them into a, a, a position at least where he was able to fight back. But I'm guessing he must have... Norman must have been injured, mustn't he? Not with yeah, he he had a he had a dodgy shoulder. Uh, that's why he, he didn't bowl. He didn't bowl at all, did he? No, didn't didn't bowl a ball. Which makes you think: Would you want to perhaps just push him up a spot and, and give another bowler a go, just so you've got enough options? It's so hard to say with 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 PNG because we know how that team is comprised, and we say it. I say it all the time, and it's it's turned into a cliche. But the team's just missing one bat. It was one good bat in that lineup somewhere to help out and even even Kipling Dariga showed uh some aggression there especially in that last game when he and and Chad Soper put together a decent partnership to make that score look a little bit more respectable but there's so much riding on Valor with the bat and when yeah when when Tony Ura didn't make runs and he was dropped and then Legacy Aka didn't make runs between Valor and, and Amini they've got to make 100 to 120 runs between them if if they're any realistic shot, and that's even with Norman Vanua playing in that team, unless you're going to somehow bump even even Chad up to to do play more of a batting role, which he might have been able to do in hindsight. But again, it's it's just so hard, so tricky for for that team. And yeah, as you mentioned, there's just there's not a whole lot of quality knocking down the door. Gaudi Toka might have been an option that they considered and was in the squad and has performed at domestic level, got found out a little bit with his bowling, but I think he's more of a bat than a bowler. So it's interesting what, what happens in the next cycle. And again, you know, they're going to be 
flat out trying to qualify and, and Philippines are coming through there. So on their side of the draw, you would think we haven't seen the official sort of teams, eight teams put together for those qualifiers. Um, but you would think that they'd be playing in Asia against a couple of really strong Asian oppositions who are returning to relative strength. So I fear that we won't see them in Australia, which is, is really unpoetic given that they qualified for this tournament thinking that they were to be playing in Australia and they arguably would have played better had the tournament been in Australia but again we look at growth in the next 12 months or we look at growth in the next six months growth in the next sort of five years down the line and they're one team that I can't sit here and and, and say confidently that there's anyone sort of coming through that can really bash the door down and, and make that team. Should we quickly look at Oman? Because I think they're almost in the same category to a point as Papua New Guinea. They had a couple of guys qualify before the tournament. Basically, at the 11th hour, Kashyap Prajapati qualified for the tournament and looked okay with the bat. Jatinder Singh played a huge role, as did Zishan Maksud on both sides of the ball. Bill Khan again, we, we knew the quality that he brings to the table, and he certainly delivered that to a certain degree, but... Again, you've got to say that it was just the the depth across the 11, let alone the squad, just probably wasn't up to par and and overrun by a confident Scotland outfit that that covered all bases in comparison. No, you, you said it. You know, some of the numbers are great. You know, Bilal Khan, five wickets, average below 10, economy below four and a half. You know, that's world class. And not seeing him come up against the, some of the best players in the world is a disappointment. You know, we talked about, uh, I always think of him as the coach's son, Muhammad Nadim. You know, he always bats at five and always <laughs> always bowls his full compliment. But again, he, he, bowled not, uh, he only bowled nine overs and went for 80. So he was disappointing. Yeah, which I think we flagged in the preview show with Muhammad Nadeem too that we'll probably talk about his batting, but the bowling is just at that next level was just that type of bowling that would probably be found out, even against two other associate members in the in the group. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and look, you've already, I think, covered a lot of the names. What was disappointing was that they were the worst fielding team across both groups. I think in game one, a lot of balls going through legs and catches, and it's all the more frustrating when you see a guy like Jatinda celebrating like he does taking catches after you know after he dropped a couple it's like oh you don't need to celebrate i I find that kind of over celebration that look you're hosting a world cup in front of your home fans and and he's one of the the only what two products of the omani system in the side so be be proud but it was just the the juxtapose with the juxtaposition of him celebrating like that with the fielding uh, it's like Mate, concentrate. Yeah, you know, concentrate more on the on the game and less on the celebration. But again, that's that's a little a little edgy thing. But I think that was what kind of took the the real gloss off Oman for me. You know, that the players who we thought would perform would would did like you said we did flag about Nadim. The the bowlers that are big game bowlers, Bilal Khan and Zisha Maxud both took five wickets. Both you know great numbers. Kali Muller I thought was was great. Really bowling with with a good good head of steam. Um, so everyone did what we, we expected. It's just those big moments, um, that game against Scotland. But again, Scotland did that easy in the end. You know, and it's, uh, we, we said, uh, yeah, Oman has the potential of losing a lot of wickets quickly. And, and, and that happened and they, they never recovered. So again, although I think some of us tipped Oman to, to go through, maybe ahead of Scotland in their home conditions, in the end, I think, you know, Oman did Oman things that, that sort of kept them out of that top two spot. Yeah, they're a fascinating team, and and 
when they played that warm-up match against, well, the two warm-up matches against Sri Lanka, in one of those, I think it was the first of the two, I actually thought that they might have answered their questions that they had about that middle to lower batting order because I think the game was just out of reach, but the likes of Nadim, Nazim Kushi, Sandy Proud came in and, and hit the balls at all parts of the ground and, and provided some sort of challenge. But the problem was they didn't translate that into the tournament proper. And that was the big question for Oman. We knew that the, the top order was good. They won by 10 wickets against PNG. Max Hood with the bat probably would think to himself that he might have liked to contribute a bit more. But on home conditions, you need to make the most of them. In saying that their record at home isn't particularly anything to write home about. So I don't want to say it was a predictable finish, but I just think with the law of averages that the cricket normally is in group play like this, they were always going to be behind the eight ball and, and just behind Scotland gunning for that second spot in the group. It just so happened that Scotland ended up beating Bangladesh anyway, which I think if Oman were looking at that unfold in front of them, they probably thought, oh, we're in real trouble here. If Scotland jagged that game against Bangladesh, then we're in real strife to just get through because we can't see ourselves beating Bangladesh. And, you know, Scotland with a full head of steam as they, as they showed proved that they were a quality outfit. I, I want to bring up Oman hosting that half of the group, not from a playing standpoint, but just the organisation. They were thrown that tournament very last minute. I think it was, it could have even been, was it August when they were they were thrown that, that tournament or July? It was very, very late in the piece. It was well after we spoke to Pankaj Kimji, who had organised the, the ground to be of test match level, to host Afghanistan if they were to host there. They ended up being thrown a hospital pass almost hit by India to, to kind of host part of the tournament. They were up for it. They got the stadium up to scratch just at the last minute. We saw in Cricket World Cup League 2, that was being built. Almost the slowest sort of time-lapse video I've ever seen during Cricket World Cup League 2 and those stands being erected. But it proved to be a pretty good atmosphere in Oman. They got decent crowds, especially for the Bangladesh game, which is understandable. You would think that, you know, either traveling fans or the Bangladeshi diaspora, that they would make quite a big atmosphere. Same too with Sri Lanka when they visited for the warm-up matches. You've got to hand it to Pankaj and his team. They did a pretty supreme job hosting their first ever major tournament, albeit, you know, a group stage of a, of a T20 World Cup. Yeah, I'm not sure how much more I can add to that. I think you're talking about good crowds. I was pretty disappointed with the turn-up on day one. Yeah. You know, you're hosting your first ever World Cup and millions have been spent building stands and whatnot around it. You know, could you not afford a few buses to get some school kids in with the Oman playing in the first game of their first ever hosted World Cup? I don't think the optics of that were very good and I think is perhaps telling of the, the lack of cut through there into the local population for the game as yet. And look, Pankaj has said himself that they've gone for a top-down approach in getting some professionals, importing players and getting some success and, and trying to get that success to trickle down and get people interested. But to me, if you can't get the population in, yes, they've just had a massive tropical storm hit it and it's hot during the day. But surely that, that thinking goes into it when you're designing the stadium to have um, sun protection, etc. But no, I really loved the look of the venue. I thought it was put, put together really well to be a boutique ground like it was. It's not going to be holding 40,000 people. So all the little different, you know, every bit of the ground had its own personality, which I, I really liked. There was a sort of old school feel, but sort of modern, modern old school boutique venue. But something that I'm sure 
with Nate Hayes watching that, you know, Church Street suddenly be- became a host for a World Cup. You know, how would you do it in a place like that? And it'd be something something similar where you don't lose the, the identity of the, of the field. So that was well done. I, You know, I wouldn't have been on the players' minds because they would have been, you know, they're, they're not out there doing any work on the scaffolds. And I'm sure, you know, knowing Pankaj's success from a business point of view, the last thing that he would have wanted their players, his players to worry about at all was what was going on there that they were hosting, that they, they would have just been concentrating on that. So I don't think that would have been a factor and the nerves playing at home perhaps you know you see it as, as an advantage or well, we, we at least saw it as a potentially an unfair advantage that they got to be playing at home when you know it was not their tournament and it sort of came late should they've had that that advantage but I don't think it had a, made a huge difference in the end um, they weren't able to ride the crowd home for example against Scotland and take those those key wickets although there was a very silent crowd when Scotland was hitting the, hitting a lot of boundaries to uh, yeah. to reel that in which does say that at least you had some some level of home crowd. Oh, and how good was it to have cricket on with no fake crowd noise yeah. in the background as well? Even on those quiet days, it was good that they so good choice for the ICC team there to not do that. If only choice of commentators was as 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 good of people that were prepared and knowing the players that they were they were commentating on. I guess we haven't had a chance to talk about that, but that was something that was disappointing, really disappointing actually. That you know we had two specialists in there. Preston Momsen and Niall O'Brien, but I, I just think overall across both commentary teams, there's just a real lack of insight and research beyond stats, and also one or two tidbits that may have been there waiting for them, and that was really disappointing. When look, I, I can blow your uh, your horn here because um, <laughs> the difference of having a, a, a you, a Peter Della Penner, and an Andrew Leonard in a com box calling these matches, well, the difference that would have made. So I can only hope as we move into another World Cup in Australia and, and beyond with the experience, with the pathway events and when the world opens up, that the ICC sort of open their, their eyes to this and see that we'll... I saw so many comments from non-associate cricket followers on, on Twitter as well talking about how, how they weren't enjoying it at all because of how bad the commentary was. You know, and I've, I remember writing stories upon stories for the commentary team for the, the Asia Cup and, and also beforehand the Blitz because you want to make sure that your teams are, you know, correctly projected to the world there were some amazing stories about these players and it just felt like that got left behind and and i think you know on one hand that's in the hands of the commentators because you should be doing your own prep but also in what was what was waiting for them and you know the app worked great in terms of highlights and coverage etc which they can do the same for pathway events but you need commentators who aren't referring to the players on the field as the bowler or the batter the fielder because they don't know who they are you know that's absolute basics uh, how are you going how's it going to draw you into the game if it's been called like by someone who's just arrived and turned up and looked out there and not actually known anything about these players or, or the attributes or the, the idiosyncrasies of all these cricketers and what makes them them um, really did take away for me. Uh, this, the, the thing I would kind of factor in is that if they are... Uh, a lot of these people potentially watching the first round of this tournament are people from outside this sort of echo chamber of associate cricket... Maybe the thinking is that they're trying to almost give it to them at a, at a bite-sized level where they are introducing these players as if they've never seen them before. So that that might be something to consider. But there were a couple of comments that I, I just sat there and, and cringe isn't the right word, but I, I found a little bit off-putting. I mean, the M word, and this was actually a question that came from, from Alan Kerr while we, we threw it out to people listening to the pod. Did Bez tear his hair out listening to people say the word minnow and to be honest i found that frustrating and i I don't know 
whether it's just us again being in this echo chamber, but I just find that word just offensive, really. If you look up the definition of what the word means, it doesn't it doesn't describe the teams here at this tournament. This is a World Cup. You know, these aren't the so-called minnows. I don't think any minnows exist, but if they did, it's certainly not these 16 teams playing at the World Cup. It doesn't matter if they're in the first round or not. I found that a little bit peculiar. I've got to give a shout out. There were a couple of things that I did notice that that some commentators picked up on and ran with that I really did like. I felt like Simon Dool put in a bit of a really good effort, you know, pronouncing Gerard. And even though the graphics having Merva, which is actually his first name, we should probably point out. It's I think the only people that still call him Merva though are his parents uh, for Gerard Erasmus. But yeah, it was just a little bit strange. And you can tell, you can just tell when people phone it in. Like, it is obvious. Mm, absolutely, you can feel it. Yeah. There's just a pause. It's just a bit forced. They use the same sort of formula for describing players. Like, X is born in X, and X has mm, a T20. Really. I'm he's, glad you brought that up. He's only played. He's only played five T20 internationals for X. But what you have to f- remember is that a lot of these guys played internationals for their countries before status was even present. I think Kyle Kutzer has. I think he just ticked over 200 caps for Scotland during this tournament. I don't think that's reflected in Crick Info because I'm sure that quite a few of those matches didn't have any status. So for some, it it, it makes sense. For, for Chris Greaves, it made sense because he's only just been thrown into this team and he's only played X number of games. But anything pre-2018 from a T20 international standpoint, the numbers misguide you. So automatically, you're giving wrong information, really, when you're talking about how much experience a player has. I think of... I'm sure there are guys of without looking at the notes on hand here, but Callum McLeod, Richie Barrington, Safian Sharif, the number of T20 internationals with status they've played might be X as reflected on their quick info profiles. But they've got dozens more matches of experience. That Scottish team is one of the most experienced international teams in associate cricket we've ever seen. And it probably wasn't reflected with quick info numbers, but that's all the commentators are looking at. Uh, there's just little bits there, isn't there? Like like one commentator said, Chad Soper, who's played a little bit of cricket in Australia. Well, he grew up in Kingcumber, mate. Like yeah. he, he played under nines for Kingcumber Avoca Cricket Club. I know this because I literally was with him at Kingcumber High School Nets as an eight-year-old playing cricket with him. I mean... Yeah, you might not get, you know, experience that, that that's that immersive or from a personal experience, but it just makes such a difference. I mean, they'd make that same research if it was Rohit Sharma, if it was Imad Wazim, if it was Glenn Maxwell. Why can't it be for Chad Soper, Charles Amini, Sandeep Gowd, players of, of this ilk? Because this is the World Cup, you know, this is the ultimate for them. Well, you know, the, the ultimate, and that's another another kind of term that really got my back up as well. But, you know, can you imagine any other sport playing warm-up matches with ostensibly bigger teams on at the same time as as first-round games of a World Cup? You know, to, to see TV programs prioritise non-status, you know, 15-a-side warm-up matches over the World Cup proper tells you that something's wrong, doesn't it? And it's not its not those teams' faults. It's not India's fault for playing a warm-up game because, of course, they should be playing warm-up games because they're, they're playing in a week's time. Yeah. But it just doesn't work. And that just tells me, again, why this first-round format is just so bad. And I know we've talked about it to death and, but, you know, why does 2022 need to be like that? Why can't 2022 go to a yeah. uh, two groups of eight? Look, 
anything, anything except what we've what we've ended up with here again. Because, you know, the crowds are one thing. You know, I saw crowds in Abu Dhabi for the matches that have been on. But if, if you don't raise the, the profile of these matches, then you're just doing it such a disservice. And then playing warm-up games at the same time, it's, oh, spare me, spare me. Like, like, and everyone, everyone then feels like they're warming up as well. You know, commentators, umpires, I think they made some jokes about the umpires, you know, so first matches, you know, it takes umpires some time to get into a tournament as well. No, that first game, everyone should be firing. You know, we've talked about on the playing point of view with the Netherlands looking like they were underdone. But just making these little comments, is, but I remember the, the dugout being completed the day before our first game in Nagpur in, in, in 2016. And don't get me wrong, the production value... Oh, jeez, oh, the first couple of days were those, those graphics. <laughs> you know, it's... Oh, you know, your one job, you're the professional working on the graphics. And that, that first, the start of the game when, you know, Siaka come out to open the innings and they managed to put the stats up of two different players within a minute. And, and to our point about the commentators, it confused the commentators because they didn't realise the person was out there with the, the, the name on the back. And they're only working off the fruit machine. They're only working off those graphics too, which is actually fair enough from a commentator's standpoint because sometimes they're not... So I can actually give some pearls of wisdom. I don't know. They might not be wisdom. All pearls. (laughs) All pearls. Working as a statistician on cricket telecasts, I've done it for multiple networks now. It's my job to be able to identify players when they walk out to bat for the score operator, for the TV score operator, and for the commentators. So when the players walk out to bat, we'll say who's opening the batting. So for instance, it's, I don't know, Jatinder Singh and Aki Bilyas walking out. And you identify that with numbers, with the with the bat makes. You identify the bat makes because that helps identify. And, and people have personable features, right? Some players have beards. Some players are tall. That's how you work out who people are. But two hours before the broadcast even starts and you rock up to do a game, either working on graphics or in stats, you cross-check all the graphics to make sure, one, the stats are right, and two, players' names are right, and their disciplines are right. The number of times where I've talked to the operator at Alston Elliott who run the TV graphics, and they're like, okay, let's run through the, the bowling criteria for these guys. Is Simon Attai a seam bowler, which... Someone said he was because the graphic said it. No, he's a left-arm orthodox spinner. It's those things that should be ironed out two or three hours before the telecast even begins. And we're seeing it in front of us, in front of our very eyes. And it was the same with, with Head Out Erasmus and, and Murder for popping up. And yes, again, we'll talk about it. Murder is actually his first name. And that's what his dad, Francois, calls him. Um, but it, it's just these little things that just that really set people off. And... If this is the first identifier for people who haven't seen these players play before, that's their first impression. And we know what first impressions are. They're so hard to turn around. So if things are uninformed wrong to start with, the habits are so hard to break. During the BBL, when Sandeep Lamachane was signed by the Melbourne Stars, someone thought his name was Lamachane, like Manus Lamachane, or a similar pronunciation. And it's taken two seasons and commentators are still getting it wrong. Because because someone said it first and someone thought it was gospel. It's exactly the same as a graphic, as a pronunciation or a misinformed piece of information. Like think of how many times people have said to you, Tim, that Anchi Rath was 
born in India. He wasn't born in India. It's just because someone had sort of spouted it on a reputable news source or it was on someone's profile. The people have taken it as gospel when it's wrong. And these things get clarified when you're a full member and it gets talked about and you get interviewed and your Wikipedia page gets updated to the second, probably by Lugnuts. Shout out to our boy Lugnuts or girl <laughs> or girl Lugnuts. But when it comes to this, it's got to be right early and it's got to be right first. Even if it's slow, it's better to be slow and right than fast and wrong. And that was a big bugbear that I had. And those things should be ironed out. I don't know who's working on it. I don't know who's doing it. But it's the type of thing that needs to be clarified. And yeah, we have a website where we try and get it right. And I think for the most part, we we do get it right because we're involved in it, right? But if we're an echo chamber and we've only got 10,000 followers or whatever on Twitter or the number that we have on Facebook... If people don't see it, people don't see it and people's opinions and thoughts don't change. It's about getting the word out there and making sure that it's right. But it's also about the commentators actually making the initiative to go find out, oh, who actually would know something better than this? Because that's the good part. That's the part that people need. That's the bitter pill sometimes people need to swallow. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're doing it wrong, right? Because you you always have to find and gather new information. And I and I compare international cricket to something like the Premier League. There's 20 teams in the Premier League and commentators and researchers know everything in and out about all those 20 teams. 11 players in a side plus 7 substitutes. We've only got 16 teams at this World Cup, yet people are very happy to be focusing on a, on the select 12 that make, or not even the 12, the 8 that were automatically there. But you think of, again, to bring it back into football, there's 32 teams at a World Cup. The commentators are that researched and that in tune with every single squad member, all 23 players of all 32 squads. There's no excuse that cricket can't be the same for a competition that's half as big in terms of numbers of playing teams. Well, you, you, you promised us pearls of wisdom. And I think we could start a jewellery shop after that. Um, <laughs> no, insightful. And, and that helps. And that well, it helped me as well, not not just to listeners too. You know, I learned a lot there. You're talking yeah. about what your your job is. And I guess, you know, if we're talking about David Vise being the glue or being the little rocks between the big rocks, um, <laughs> you know, you just pointed out, you know, how key your role is in the box and, and how professionals should be ahead of the game. So, so yeah, not too much more to add to that. But I don't know, I guess, what do we think about the... We've agreed the format is rubbish and we know what's coming. What, from 2024 onwards, is that right? We're going to have four groups of five going into Super 8. But uh, what are we thinking about this format at the moment, rolling into 2022, since we've actually got one one more to go with a round one? Well, our friend Bertus de Jong, who does a lot of good work on, on formats and uh, how to structure tournaments, he made the point that you know one way to prevent dead rubbers and, and you know give all the teams something to play for would be to just make it that the top four teams in the each Super 12 group uh, qualify directly to the Super 12 next time. Uh, and, and that way, it's sort of almost like the old uh, World Cricket League structure. We have two up going to the semifinals, two down being relegated to the first round and two who stay in the middle and, and qualify for next year's uh, Super 12s. And, and that way, you know, at the back end of the group stage, if you're not in the semifinals, because, you know, two teams out of six, that's, you know, that's tough. So at the back end of the group stage, if you're not in that, you know, in contention for that top two, you've still got something to play for, and you know you don't want to be dumped back to the first round. And you know, imagine if you know New Zealand or, or Australia or, or someone else has a shocker and they get dumped back to the first round, and they have to play against the likes of, let's say Scotland or, or, or let's say uh, 
Oman or you know, whoever makes it out of the next year's um, global qualifier, that'd be great for cricket. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's strange that they've just gone on rankings because, you know, the rankings at the end of the tournament or whenever the cutoff is, I think the cutoff is like the, the, the day after the tournament ends or, you know, very close to it. That doesn't give teams any time to improve, which, you know, if you're going to do it on rankings, you, you'd want to. And But if, if the idea is to do it based on tournament results, why not do it based on tournament results directly rather than rankings that come from tournament results? I don't know. It's just a strange way to do it, which leads to the suspicion that it's either kind of a, a, a you know, no one really thought about it or it's, you know, the, I guess, more cynical interpretation is it's a bit of a fudge to kind of make sure that teams like Scotland and Namibia don't going to the Super 12s next year. I don't know if that's too uh, suspicious, but, you know, it does raise the question because it doesn't really make much sense otherwise. I will say, and this is not me being a contrarian or or trying to play devil's advocate, but one thing I do like about the current format is that, okay, if the warm-up matches weren't played at the same time, I'd be more for it. But what it does mean is that the teams that are red hot and in form from that level go into the next level and you think based on that you would get the most competitive team out of that group playing in the next stage now I'm not saying that that makes it better but what I am saying is if we are to look at the positives it means that you know we we don't see a team who okay from a 2019 qualifier looked really good and then they fall off the face of the earth and then they get thrown into a really tough group and play a team like India for whatever reason, although they just got dusted up by 10 wickets. For me, it just it means that, yeah, at least the informed team is the one representing. Again, I'm not saying that that makes the format right. It's just one nice little side effect of, of what's not a completely fantastic format makes it just that little bit better. I think eventually, yeah, you will go to 20 teams and, and have four groups of five or five groups of four, however you want to do it. But yeah, I don't know. I think that maybe if we had more teams represented at that first round and we had groups of five or something, I'm not 100% sure what the answer is. But that that's kind of one more positive side effect out of this kind of entire exercise. Yeah, and no, I think we saw that with Sri Lanka and the way that they, they had those three games to get tuned up and they looked good, yeah. So looking at it and make, you know, we, we can't avoid this, this point that there is financial benefits to to qualifying for the next round as well even with the limited success in the first round for the the teams who didn't progress but looking at it from a Namibian and Scottish point of view that there's a little bit of extra money money in the kitty for both of them you would suspect that that money would probably go a little bit further in a Namibian economy than it would in a a Scottish one Nick but it's just another incentive and and where that money goes next is is another question but I mean ultimately it's better than not having it at all so another incentive and, and ultimately something that can help build the game in, in both of those uh in those two cricketing nations yeah uh, you we were talking a bit about you know silver linings to this kind of dumb format and i guess the opportunity to win three more games and, and get forty thousand dollars a game is i guess a silver lining you could say so yeah as you say i, I think it's something that associates will be used to is just the fact that you know all the time that they're you know getting grants and funding and prize money and they're always looking at ways to reinvest it into the cricket scene and um, you know it's something that I guess associate administrators spend a lot of time thinking about you know how can we stretch every dollar as far as possible and obviously in you know, Namibia it will go a bit further but yeah you know maybe they could hire a 
some more staff or, or maybe do some extra contracts for like rookie players or, or uh, put some more funding into the women's side and centrally contract a couple of players there. So, you know, you're always looking for ways to kind of, you know, redirect any any windfall that you get. And, you know, making it to the second round of the tournament is $70,000 in the bank. That could pay for, you know, quite a lot in Namibia or... Um, yeah, so yeah, I think I think this is good, and, and hopefully um, they can notch up a few victories and you know just uh, pump up that uh, that that war chest for developing the game. Yeah, so I think we'd make it clear that the forty grand for any win in round one or round two, um, and because they've made it through to the Super Twelves, they get a guaranteed seventy thousand. Uh, unlike those teams who didn't get through in round one, who get forty k. So the likes of PNG and Netherlands will walk away with 40 so that means that you know scotland at the moment have 190,000 in the bank and namibia 150 so yeah that's, that can make a, a big difference yeah but with another global event coming up in a year's time and although they'll have money from the icc to help that as well as you said it'll um, it'll go a long way in both places so yeah it's good to good to see and i don't think there's anything like that in the, the 2016 world cup i don't remember any prize money being announced for for wins in, in that round one so it's uh it's good that it's taking this step too. Well, great to chat with you boys as usual. Hope everyone around the emerging world enjoyed this wrap as much as we did recording it. Good luck to both Scotland and Namibia in the Super 12 stage. We're sure you guys will perform uh, at your best and will certainly challenge a number of those teams in the group. Uh, it's been a pleasure to watch the tournament from afar and being involved in it, hopefully, um, we'll get to see some some more great giant killing results as well. But once again, boys, thanks for joining me. And as for everyone else around the world, sit back and enjoy the Super 12 stage. We'll have the EC Weekly Pod this week, so enjoy that as well. But for now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Culler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the emerging cricket world. <laughs>